This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, good evening. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the RAND Corporation. My name is Naveena Panasamy. I'm the Executive Director of Development here. Tonight's event is held in collaboration with the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, a research organization headquartered in Washington, D.C. We thank them for working with us on the program and also welcome everyone who is here as a guest of the Wilson Center. Thank you. So it's now my honor to introduce our speakers for tonight. Their full biographies are in the program on your chair. And as I begin the introductions, I'd like to invite the speakers to come up on the stage. Dahlia Dasike is the director of the RAND Center for Middle East Public Policy and a senior political scientist. She has taught at UCLA's International Institute and Berkel Center and at George Washington University. Dahlia is author of many publications on regional security in the Middle East. Aaron David Miller is the Vice President for New Initiatives and a Distinguished Scholar at the Wilson Center. He has written extensively on the Middle East, focusing on Arab-Israeli relations, the PLO, Saudi Arabia, and more. His upcoming book is entitled The End of Greatness, Why America Can't Have and Doesn't Want Another Great President. For the prior two decades, he served at the Department of State, where he helped formulate U.S. policy on the Middle East and the Arab-Israel peace process, most recently as a senior advisor for Arab-Israeli negotiations. Nicholas Goldberg is the editor of the editorial pages for the Los Angeles Times and is tonight's moderator. He joined the Los Angeles Times in 2002. He is a former reporter and editor at Newsday in New York, where he worked as the Middle East bureau chief. While there, he covered the Israeli-Palestinian peace process, presidential elections in Iran, arms monitoring in Iraq, famine in Sudan, civil war in Algeria, war in Lebanon, and the rise of Islamic fundamentalism in Saudi Arabia. I'd now like to turn the discussion over to Nick. Thank you. Good evening. Good evening. Thanks for coming out. We have, uh, uh, we've been given a uh, a tough task here. We're supposed to discuss the entire Middle East, Iran, Syria, <laughs> Israel, uh, and all the other, in an hour. We have 25 minutes, then you get to uh, uh, jump in with questions. Uh, so it's, it's a lot to do, um, but we're looking forward to it. I hope we'll also solve all those problems while we're at it. Um, I wanted to uh, jump right in and, and, and start with some broad questions and then, and then move on to more specific things. Uh, I, want, I wanted to start by asking you both to explain, ask you each to explain, what are the, the chief challenges for U.S. foreign policy in the region today and how the, the administration is doing in navigating those, uh, those challenges? Why don't we start with uh, Aaron? First of all, uh, Nick, thanks, and it's an honor to be here. Uh, Navinia, thank you for that overly generous introduction. Uh, and I'm proud to represent the Wilson Center which is a living memorial to our 28th president, our only PhD president, and the only president buried in Washington, D.C., which reflects, actually, um, in a stunning way, on the relationship between our presidents and, and the city in which they served. Um, big question. Um, in, in my own view, if you want to identify challenges for the United States um, right now, um, there are three or four main 
issues. Number one is how to stop Iran from acquiring a putative nuclear weapons capacity, if not the weapon itself. How to pursue uh, a credible, effective, and endurable solution, a durable solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, how to comport itself with respect to the transactional and transformative changes sweeping the Arab world. What to do about Syria. Um, and uh, how to extricate the United States from the two longest and arguably among the least uh, profitable wars in its history in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I would identify those as, as the four, four uh, challenges. And I think they're informed. If you want to understand the Middle East, you start in the Middle East. If you want to understand American foreign policy, you start in Washington. Uh, American policy with respect to all these issues are informed by a couple um, realities. Number one, you have a, you have a very risk-averse, not risk-ready president who is focused far more these days on the middle class, not on the Middle East. And as the sands tick, uh, tick through the uh, presidential hourglass in the years that remain to his presidency, the question for Barack Obama is how to focus on consolidating and preserving the gains of his first administration rather than investing in um, a series of foreign policy adventures um, that could come at a high cost and involve the United States in a number of problems, and let me be clear about this, all of the problems I've identified, in my judgment, don't have solutions, they have outcomes. The outcomes could be better than the situation we see now, but if you're looking for comprehensiveness, finality, certainty, in any of these issues, then you've come to the wrong region. President, in my judgment, while not understanding that during this first term, a Nobel Prize recipient before he earned it, a man who believed that he would transform not only America's domestic policy, but its foreign policy, learned a lot in his first four years. And effective presidents, and I'm just reporting here, I'm not, Barack Obama is a historic president. Whether he will be judged as a consequential one is another matter. But he learned a lot, and presidents adjust and adapt. The good ones learn and adapt and adjust. And I think um, this president learned a great deal about the Middle East. Uh, one last point. We're now emerging from the two longest wars in American history, where the standard for victory was never could we win, but when could we leave. And extrication is not the metric you want to use to judge the performance of the great, still greatest power uh, in the international system today. These two wars cost us a lot in lives, in credibility, uh, and in treasure. We inflicted an enormous amount of damage. And one of the things that drives this president is that he is the extricator in chief. It is his mandate to get America out of wars it cannot win, not into new ones. And I would submit to you that explains a lot about his policies towards Syria and even his diplomacy with respect to uh, Iran. Finally, unlike World War I and II, particularly World War II, the only 20th century war that was kind to an American president, the United States emerged from that war stronger at home and with more influence abroad than at any other point in its history. We emerged from Iraq and Afghanistan weaker at home, with a domestic house that is badly fractured 
I call them the six deadly Ds. Dysfunctional politics, debt, deficit, dependence on hydrocarbons, a deteriorating infrastructure, and a disastrous educational system. These are slow bleeds. They're not crises that demand the attention. They are over, over time. But they don't give rise to unity in our politics. They don't give rise to latitude as presidents try to make policy toward them. They sow division, acrimony, and tremendous partisanship. And that's another reason why this president is risk-averse when it comes to where, how, and why uh, he's going to project American power abroad. Uh, thanks, Aaron, for setting an upbeat tone. Um, Dahlia, I wanted to ask you the same question. Can you talk a little bit about the, the challenges facing the U.S., but particularly with regard to what's happening in the region? And maybe while you're at it, can you talk a little bit about how the different, the different uh, countries interrelate? How does Iran relate to Syria? How does the peace process in Israel and Palestine relate to, to, to each of those things? Okay, all in five minutes, sure. Um, <laughs> Aaron you, went Nick. on long. You only thank have four. You, no, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. And, um, yeah, I thought that, Aaron, you were just going to depress us about the Middle East, but now I'm learning we're actually going to have to be depressed about what's happening in our country as well tonight. So I'll try to, I'll try to create some balance here, but um, it's hard to be optimistic about the Middle East today. It's a, it's a tough challenge. I think we're actually living through one of the most transformative periods in in the history of this region, um, at least uh, since many people I know, we have many experts in the room, and I hope we hear from those of you from the region. Um, but one challenge, Erin, you didn't mention, is the Arab Spring, and that and that might be um, and that might be, I think, very telling because I think one of the reasons this region is so transformative is we had this major upheaval three years ago, um, going into a fourth year now, uh, that really has unsettled. Um, really pretty much all the fundamental structures. For years, people said the Middle East is so exhausting. You, the, the, nothing ever changes. You know, the, author, the same leader that you was there 20 years ago is there today. Um, the same corrupt authoritarian systems, um, the same repression, the same lack of opportunities for the overwhelming youth populations in the region. And here you had this major upheaval. We at RAND don't tend to call it the Arab Spring. We tend to call it the Arab Uprisings because it's a story in progress. And it's a very uneven story. And there may be some positive outcomes emerging in places like Tunisia, but overall, it has not gone well. And these upheavals have created tremendous challenges for the United States and has led to very confused policies. And to be fair to the administration, rightly so, because we're faced with an unprecedented set of changes. And I think one of the reasons it may not have come up in your comments is because it's not the current priority of the U.S. administration, of the Obama administration, for the very reason that despite this dramatic set of changes, and we can maybe get into it in more depth in the conversation, and Karen House is here who can do a whole talk on this topic, um, the bottom line is the United States has very, very limited ability to influence it. This is ultimately an internal struggle within these countries for identity, for their futures. We will try on the margins to support forces of moderation and tolerance and giving opportunity to the young generations. At RAND, we've spent a lot of time focusing on those questions of empowering youth and providing health and education and trying to basically make governments work better in this region. Um, but it's a long process. The Arab Spring is a story in progress. 
it, right now it's looking pretty bad. You basically have a regime back in Egypt um, that's looking not too unlike the Mubarak regime that was ousted. So in a lot of ways, we feel like there's throwback, but I would submit we really have seen significant change and we are not going to ever go backwards. We might not be going forwards in a positive way across the board, but I think that may be one of the reasons that the Obama administration, when they kind of did an assessment of this region, and basically, you know, the view is, whatever we do in this region, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't. You're sitting in Washington, look at Egypt. You know, the government there blames us for being in cahoots with the Muslim Brotherhood, that we've been supporting them because we dealt with the leadership that was there that was freely elected. And the Muslim Brotherhood argues we're still bolstering the military regime um, in, in Cairo, and we are still supporting it with military assistance. So, you know, it, again, it's one of those feelings in Washington, however many times Hegel calls General Sisi, we are not going to be able to influence the outcome in these countries. These are long-term generational struggles. And so basically, I think this administration sat back, did an assessment, which I think you summarized well, which is basically saying, where can we make a difference and where do we have to still pay attention to even if we can't? And so I think that's what basically led to the focus on, I would say, yeah, getting out of the, the two wars is certainly is, is the mission and, and I think underlies a lot of the policy. But I would say right now, three primary areas of focus in terms of challenges for the region that the U.S. is focused on. One is an opportunity, that's Iran. And you know the Middle East is bad when Iran is, is the number one opportunity, but that looks like that might be the case today. The second is a necessity, that's Syria, because it's too, too dangerous of a conflict, too risky in terms of its spillover to the rest of the region to completely ignore, and hopefully we can get into that in some follow-up. And three, I think the Middle East peace process, and that's really a policy of choice, and I am absolutely deferring to Aaron Miller on any peace process questions tonight, given his background. But um, I would say that's why we are where we are today, where we're not really talking about the Arab uprisings as the number one challenge, where we're really focusing um, on these other areas. Now, the Syria, obviously, is part of the Arab uprisings, but it's, it's more in the sense of how do we stop the civil war, not how do we promote democratic transition. So that's a different conversation. Can I just, just make one additional point? It's really important here to distinguish between what is vital and what is not. Mm-hmm. Vladimir Putin has vital interests. Geography and proximity basically are, are in his favor. Uh, and he acted, and he was prepared to project military force, and he did. The real question for this administration is what are our vital interests in this region? And I would argue there are four of them, and they all relate back to uh, the importance of connecting the Middle East to uh, what happens in this country at home. Number one is the organizing principle of any nation's foreign policy, protecting the homeland. If you can't protect your homeland, you don't need a, you don't need a foreign policy. 9-11 was the second bloodiest day in American history exceeded by only one day in the Battle of Antietam in September of 1862, in which more Americans were killed in a single afternoon in the continental United States than in any other day in American history. 9-11 is a footnote for many people, but it is still a reality. We are safer, but we are not safe. That is a critically important piece of this administration's policy. It is where this president has been prepared to invest time, money, and it is the most risk-ready area of his foreign policy. He has proven to be a much more disciplined but much more effective um, counterterrorism specialist than his predecessor, certainly with respect to the use of predator drones, in which they've been used 10 times with the frequency 
and saliency of George W. Bush. Ten times the number. That's number one. Number two is freeing America from its dependence on Arab hydrocarbons, which is a critically important piece. And there's a North American energy revolution afoot in this country. There truly is. We will never be energy independent because oil trades in a single market. So a disruption in country X can wreak havoc with financial markets. (coughs) But our margin for maneuverability can increase. Third is getting out of Iraq and Afghanistan. And four is Iran. Why? Because Iran is the only issue in this entire Middle Eastern region that could negatively affect and influence domestic economic recovery and tarnish the reputation of this president in a a major way. And now that Vladimir Putin has decided to digest Crimea and perhaps part of Ukraine, the president's, the imperative character of the president not allowing Iran to cross the nuclear threshold on his watch has now become much, much more important. He, as, he cannot afford now, after what's happened in Crimea, which is now a first, historic first since the end of the Cold War, to allow another negative first to essentially uh, make him into a weak and feckless president. It's another example of how domestic agenda, domestic politics, and the focus on what happens here relates to his Middle East agenda. Arab-Israeli peace, I was talking to Kipagopian earlier about this, it is a discretionary interest on our part, not because it is not important. It is discretionary because there is very little that we can actually do about it. In the end, and Dyer's point on the Arab Spring, winter, fall, whatever you want to describe it, is another discretionary interest because there's very little we can do about micromanaging the internal affairs of the country. Yeah. So in, in that case, let's, let's turn to Iran for a moment. Yeah. You say it's an opportunity. Yeah. Why is it an opportunity? And, and yeah. as you talk about it, can you answer for us whether, you know, should we, should we believe Bibi Netanyahu when he says, you know, that the, the U.S. is being strung along and uh, that we're going to regret that we spent all this time uh, negotiating? Well, I think um, I would have a slightly different take than Aaron. I do think um, I put it as an opportunity and not just as something to avoid because you don't want another foreign policy failure under his watch. And I think actually at this stage, based on Iranian capabilities, it's very unlikely that it will happen under his watch. Um, it, it's gonna, the timeline's a little longer than, than, let's say, Netanyahu might suggest. But I do think it's an opportunity because Iran, yes, has the ability to thwart nearly any, every American interest in the region, but it also has the ability to help the United States on pretty much every critical issue we would like to solve, whether it's Middle East peace process, whether it's ending the conflict in Syria, and you were asking in the beginning how these conflicts relate. Given that Iran is one of the main supporters of the Bashar al-Assad regime, has its advisors and trainers in, in Syria on the ground, um, you know, I don't know if Iran, if, if, if a nuclear deal would lead to positive spillover in Iran playing, you know, a little bit more positive role there or pulling back at least from its very negative role. But it's certainly not going to happen. You're certainly not going to get a deal there without Iranian uh, participation and you or, or cooperation. And you need Iran and Afghanistan as well. So Iran can be a big spoiler, but there are also a lot of areas of common interest. And I think that's what Americans for so long, we have been so focused 
on Iran as this adversary of this policy of containment. Our, our foreign policy architecture has been based about, around Iran. And there hasn't been much thought about what if we can move to a relationship, a detente with Iran. We're not going to become, as long as there's an Islamic Republic and human rights abuses and support for terrorism and all these other things, we're not going to become best friends with Iran. Okay, But there may be a trajectory in the future where we may have a lot of areas of alignment. That's not to say we're going to abandon our good friends in the region, whether it's in the Gulf or Israel, most certainly. Um, but it's to say we may be able to restructure our policy in the region quite fundamentally different and in ways that can really focus the United States on the counterterrorism mission. Because while Iran does support terrorism, Right now, some of the most extreme terrorist threats in the region are coming from Sunni Salafist extremists, especially coming out of Syria, which is becoming the new breeding ground for extreme, extreme bad guys. Okay, these are guys who are not going there for any political agenda. They are going there to kill and to learn to kill. And the Iranians happen to be on our side. Sometimes they play around with it a little bit, but more or less are on our side when it comes to countering Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda and those kinds of Sunni Salafist extremists, because they also are, are an equal threat to them, which is why the Iranians supported and worked with the United States after the fall of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. And one of my former colleagues, Jim Dobbins, actually negotiated with, with a counterpart in Iran. Um, and, and, you know, there are possibilities. So when I say it's an opportunity, I, I think right now we're seeing a leadership in Iran, and again, I don't want to be misunderstood. This is not a moderate leadership. This is not a green leadership. This is more executions have taken place under President Rouhani, who was elected last June, than in more than in Ahmadinejad's year uh, before. So I, I think you know nobody is being you know we don't have you know uh, this notion that we're being naive that some might suggest maybe in, in Israeli circles, but not all Israelis, by the way. Um, you know, I think it's just not true. I think there is a, real, a recognition that these are leaders who do some pretty nasty things. But they are serious. I, the assessment that we have made is this is a leadership. You are not going to get a better leadership than this in terms of a pragmatic approach. And the supreme leader in Iran is so far giving them the green light. And that, you know, ultimately is a key question whether that will continue. But this is a leadership for their own reasons because they have absolute domestic pressures that they cannot resolve without getting these sanctions lifted. And the Iranian, you know, over 60% of the Iranian people are under 30 years old. They were born after the Islamic Revolution. Think about that. These are, these are kids who want jobs. They want to get married, be able to get apartments. They are, they are actually um, much more favorable to the United States than many other parts of the region in terms of the population. Tremendous human capital potential. This is a constituency Rouhani knows he has to respond to. And so I think we are seeing the most pragmatic leadership we've seen for some time, but most importantly, possibly with the political support to deliver. That doesn't mean we're going to get a deal because there's the hardliners in Iran who are not happy about this. There's the hardliners on our side who don't want to see a detente with Iran. We have some very good friends in the region who are rightly worried about this, and we need to think through how we're going to support them if we do manage to reach a detente with Iran. But I think the opportunity has never been better. Whether the Ukraine-Crimea mess is going to screw that up, I don't know. Um, it certainly doesn't make it easier. But I think um, if the Iranians are interested in a deal for their own survival, 
a deal is, is going to be likely whether the Russians are fully supportive or not. So that's a, that's a good question for Aaron, because you, you mentioned this earlier. How, how does Ukraine and <coughs> how do Ukraine and Crimea play into the Middle East? I think it's, uh, and again, let me, let, me be, let me be clear about something when it comes to my own annoyingly negative views. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, I'm a fan of Groucho Marx, and in Duck Soup, Groucho, he's actually dressed as Harpo, I, th I think, said, who are you going to believe, Groucho said. Me? You're going to believe me? Or are you going to believe your lion eyes? My assessment of this region has nothing to do with uh, politics. I worked for Democrats and Republicans for 25 years. I voted for Democrats and Republicans. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm no longer charged with solving the world's problems, but just talking about them. It's driven by what I see. And what I see is a region of outcomes, not solutions. Dahlia is talking about what I consider to be a transformative change, perhaps, in the U.S.-Iranian relationship. I'm sorry, I don't see that. I see this as a transactional relationship. We're having this discussion with Iran because sanctions have imposed enough pain, and the Obama administration, through secret diplomacy, led by my good friend Bill Burns, ended up offering... Iran, the prospects of gain. And that's why people do things in life, including me or you, when there's real pain and when there's real gain. Otherwise, you have the status quo and nothing ever changes. Iran is a country driven by a profound sense of entitlement on one hand and profound insecurity on the other. That is a terrible combination. It's a terrible combination in a human being and it's a terrible combination in a nation. Profound grandiosity and insecurity. There are only three serious countries in this region today, in my judgment, and they're all non-Arabs. They are all non-Arabs. Israel, Turkey, and Iran. Domestic stability, tremendous economic potential. Two of them have very good relationships with the United States. All three of them have the power to project their military might beyond their borders. Iran is one of those countries. It fashions itself a great power in this region. Had the Shah not been overthrown by Khomeini, I guarantee you Iran would have been a nuclear weapons state today. We sold the Iranians their first tranche of nuclear technology in Atoms for Peace during the 1950s. We did that, and we would have countenanced an Iranian bomb, just as we have countenanced an Israeli nuclear capacity and Indian nuclear capacity. And on Pakistan, we're clearly ambivalent. North Korea, we're opposed. I think it's really quite simple. Iran has regional ambitions. They're not megalomaniacal. They don't call it the Persian Gulf for nothing. <laughs> and Iran sees nuclear weapons as a hedge against regime change. Ukraine gave them up in 1994 as a consequence of the Budapest Agreement, which we signed with the Brits, the Russians, and Ukraine. They gave up their nuclear weapons. Gaddafi gave up his chemicals. To me, well, Aaron, to me, Iran is interested yeah. in testing the limits of whether or not yeah. they can get a deal with us on the nuclear issue, and I think all the pressures you referred to are 100% correct, more than 100%. It's very accurate, but the real question is whether or not the power in this country, which is not Rouhani, not Zarif, right. whether the supreme leader and those around him are prepared to do this deal. I don't think, frankly, there's enough political space in Tehran. I know there's not enough political space in Washington right. to accept 
what Iran wants in a comprehensive agreement, which leads me to believe, and Ukraine makes it worse, because if, if Putin wins, and he has won already, um, both the Syrians and the Iranians will believe small powers watch the behavior of great ones. They watch very carefully, and they make their calculations based on what the great power does in response to the small power's provocation. Now, Russia is not a small power, but it has stood up to the international community in a very big way. It's quite extraordinary, really. A vital interest actually acted on by a Russian leader in defiance of his European allies and the only remaining superpower left. Iran watches this very carefully. So does Bashar Assad. And they believe they may have actually bet on the right horse. Now, if there is a deal that makes sense for the Iranians and we accept it, I think you're right. They will ignore Putin. 100% because it's in Iran's interest. I just don't know between the constraints imposed on the administration, Congress, and I don't want to trivialize Israel's concerns. I mean, I, I, you know, I, live, a, I live on the D.C. Maryland line. I don't live in this, in this angry, broken, dysfunctional region. I do n never trivialize the security concerns of a tiny power. Never. Because we, don't, we haven't a clue what it's like to live on the knife's edge. We, if we ever knew, we've forgotten. Small powers cannot afford this. So I don't trivialize. I just don't know whether or not there's enough space right. to make your deal. Right. Well, it's not, it's not my deal. I just, just, just a quick Very thing. Brief, you know, I mean, I would agree that the Ukraine business, you know, obviously it is a lesson that those powers who have acquired nuclear weapons don't get attacked and those that, you know, uh, that have given up get attacked and those that have them don't get attacked. So that's certainly not going to be a good lesson for Iran. But I would submit that the... Uh, motivation of the Iranians is not is not necessarily to weaponize, but to be on the threshold. So if there's a deal, and I we don't know because we're not sitting in Vienna right now, right? We don't know. We know what the contours of a deal are going to look like. But if there's a deal that allows some nuclear infrastructure to be in place, but buys enough time for Iranian breakout that we would be comfortable with, our friends, we could get them to be comfortable with, that's a harder question because they do live on the front lines, and we have to be appreciative of that. Um, I think that's a different story. So I'm not saying they're going to give up because if you look at polling in Iran and you know, you know how Iranians think, they want that capacity at some point. They want that insurance policy. The question is what price are they willing to pay? Right. And right now they feel they're playing too high a price. And that's why I think we have an opening and it may be a, short, a small window. I don't know if the Ukraine business is going gonna, is gonna to sidetrack it, but I think if this window, and, and that's why I think the question is, we need to be skeptical as the Israelis are, but we need to test it because that window is not going to last long. Okay, so we are running very rapidly through our time. I just want to ask, we have about three or four more minutes before we have to open it up to uh, audience questions. So I just want to ask a little bit about the, the Israeli-Palestinian peace process and Aaron, whether you are as pessimistic on that subject as you are on, uh, on some no, other. Again, Nick, in It's only going to get worse. <laughs> I'm just trying to up the audience. Look, let me be clear on something. And it may be hard for you to appreciate it. My, since leaving government, um, I um, have reached different conclusions, not because where you stand in life has a lot to do with where you sit. And by the way, where you stand in life has almost everything to do with where you sit. And I no longer sit 
in a place where I'm forced to come up with ideas that have absolutely no chance of working. When I was working, <laughs> when I was working, we had, we had a real negotiation. I mean, from 89 until the time I left in 03, things were getting a little, a little um, sketchy by 03, but for a good 12 years, we had real negotiations between Arabs and Israelis, and we actually reached agreements. Now, they were doing a lot of it on their own, but I will, I will not. I'm an idealist without illusion. I borrow from Jack Kennedy. An idealist without illusion. That's where I am. I will not look at this region and reach conclusions based on my hopes and dreams and aspirations. I have a 33-year-old and a 31-year-old. I'm not going to tell them there won't be Israeli-Palestinian peace, but if you asked me, there could never be, but if you asked me, do I believe a conflict-ending, and I choose my words very carefully, do I believe a conflict-ending agreement between Mahmoud Abbas and Benjamin Netanyahu is possible, where Netanyahu would stand in front of the Israeli Knesset and Abbas before the Palestinian Legislative Council and say the following, we don't have peace and reconciliation, but on the six core issues that drive our conflict, border security, refugees, Jerusalem, recognition of Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people, and ending claims, our conflict is over. There are no more claims to be adjudicated, no more irredenta to be, to be pursued, no more dreams, harboring dreams about what we really want. The conflict is done. Do I believe it is imaginable that these two men will say that in the, for the foreseeable future? No, that is so an Aaron, illusion. In, in, a mi- in a minute and a half, can you just tell us why, why is that, why are they not able to reach that? Is it because they don't want there to? Is three, it there, the pop- three, there are three yeah. reasons. You need leaders who are masters of their political houses, not prisoners of their constituencies. Number two, the gaps on the core issues. Jerusalem border security and refugees, just those four. Forget this whole business about recognizing Israel as the nation state of the Jewish people. That Netanyahu added for a variety of reasons. It's not a part of the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty or the Israeli-Jordanian peace treaty. You will not find it in either of those documents. It's there for a reason, I would argue, actually for a legitimate reason. But nonetheless, forget that one. Just on those four, the gaps are simply too large. And finally, there's not enough urgency. Larry Summers once said in the history of the world, nobody ever washed a rental car. Do you know, do you know, do you, do you have any idea how profound a piece of philosophy that is? Why don't you wash rental cars? You don't wash rental cars because people care only about what they own. And the Israelis and Palestinians do not own this process sufficiently to warrant the kinds of decisions that are required. Sadat is dead as a consequence of his decision. And so is Yitzhak Rabin. This is not, we trivialize the degree of difficulty and the stakes here by assuming that everybody knows how the conflict, sure, everybody knows how the conflict is going to end. The question is whether you have the will and the skill to make those decisions. And right now, they don't. Okay, thank you. We're going to open it up to uh, audience questions. We'll be taking questions. We'll start in the back here. Hi. It was mentioned earlier that about the very young demographics in Iran, and I'm aware that that's true throughout 
throughout most of the Middle East that the median age is in the 20s and is likely to remain that way for quite a while. Uh, do you see that that's likely to produce more opportunity given current trends, or is that likely to devolve into more chaos, into a more chaotic situation? Well, it's a, it's a critical point. It's one we focus on a lot. We have an initiative here at RAN called Initiative for Middle East Youth, and it's really a question of are governments and leaderships in the region going to be able to handle this challenge? So it's a question of what opportunities are going to be given to these people because it could go a very positive direction and it can go a negative, very negative direction if you have a lot of young people extremely frustrated with no opportunities, um, despair, uh, and seeing no way out. That can lead to a, to a very, very dangerous outcome. So I think the key thing is, and you hear a lot about this in the region, about building human capacity, even the uh, Gulf oil states are very, very concerned, you know, not just because of growing U.S. energy independence and the kind of revolution here going on in, in the oil industry, but also because they recognize, you know, you need to diversify, you need to build your knowledge base, and you need to give opportunities for youth, and you can't just buy your people off forever. And so there's a lot of forthcoming, you know, thinking in the region about how to move out of this predicament. Um, but you really need policies that are forward thinking. And I'm sorry, you know, it's a very unfortunate that the way the Arab uprisings have unfolded, at least to date, have really been so existential and the focus is so much on survival that I'm afraid this more forward-thinking agenda, how do you kind of service your people, get rid of subsidies, think about you know, making some tough, tough choices, that's going to be more difficult. And the last thing I would say on youth is one thing that didn't come up in our introductory remarks, but you know, you, you first question was on what are the greatest challenges in the region. I would put, you know, here we talk Iran is the number one issue for the U.S. administration. When you're in the region, it's Syria, Syria, Syria. Why? Because you have two and a half million people spilling outside of the Syrian borders, uh, you know, many of whom are children. You're, you are facing a, the most dire displacement crisis in the history of this region, one of the greatest humanitarian catastrophes that we have seen. Uh, and you have a great number of children um, in, in neighboring countries, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, who are not going to school, who have seen horrific atrocities. Uh, our, our board at, at RAND, we visited the um, uh, Zatari and Mafraq border regions in Jordan um, over the winter and um, visited some of these, uh, did some home visits with some of these refugees, and it is just it really breaks your heart. You see these children with just blank stares on their face, clearly in need of mental assistance and, and mental health uh, um, support, uh, haven't been to school in three years. In some places like Lebanon, I think the rates of children going to school are under 15%. Most of them are either, either having to work to survive. The girls are being forced to marry young and worse. Um, you And so you have this daunting humanitarian challenge, but what you also have when you don't have opportunities and you don't have a way out is you also have the great potential for radicalization and unfortunately violence and extremism. And this is not a hypothetical. Um, and we've seen refugee areas as breeding grounds for extremism in the past. It's primarily a humanitarian challenge that we should be addressing. It's a much higher priority, but it's also a security risk, which is why Syria 
is not, you know, it's like the, you know, the, the Vegas saying, and people have said it a lot, you know, it's not one of those things what stays there, you know, what you do there doesn't stay there. It is really spilling out to the entire region. Um, and so I think I would just, I think the youth in particular are a particular challenge uh, when it comes to the refugee crisis. We have a question in the back. Yeah, yeah hi. Uh, should I mention my name and my profession just to make clear to everybody who I am? Sure. Yes, I am Hosseini, the Consul General of Egypt in Los Angeles. I know you know me, some of you, you know me, but just f for everybody else. Uh, so I have two questions. One for Mr. Miller, which I uh, was one of his fans while I was serving in Washington, D.C. And uh, Maybe we I, should just keep it to one question, because I know we're, we're only going to have a chance for, for a I'll, couple I'll of I'll questions. Make it, I'll make it as short as possible, the second right. one. The first one about the armies, the non-Arab armies, which are, have the capability of uh, employing uh, its uh, uh, power uh, overseas. You mentioned Iran, Israel, and Turkey. D don't you think that the Egyptian army, while it, it ranks the number 13 on the world, is the only popular army who can interfere, especially in the Gulf, in the Horn of Africa, and in Africa? D do you, can you imagine Iran interfering in one of these areas? And then my other question to uh, Dr. Uh, Dalia. Can you see some similarity between what is happening in Egypt right now and in 1952 when the Egyptian people was looking for a savior? Thanks. You know, we've had a long-standing relationship with the Egyptian military. Al-Sisi uh, was trained here in part. Um, and the reality is our strategic relationship with Egypt is coming apart. It's coming apart for a number of reasons. Uh, and I, I, I share your concerns that uh, the, the Egyptians are now considering a $2 billion arms deal with the Russians. And we have suspended certain tranches of military assistance, in large part because we don't uh, like uh, the interim government's uh, policies with respect to pluralism and, and democratization. I mean, I, I find a lot of this to be extremely troubling. We have a very inconsistent policy. And great powers, maybe it's, it's part of their job descriptions, that hypocrisy and anomaly and contradiction. No, great powers can afford to act in inconsistent ways. We intervene in Libya, but not in Syria. We support an Arab Spring in Egypt, but not in Saudi Arabia or in Bahrain. The region demands a consistency that we could never, ever, ever uh, produce. Our policy on Syria is not an immoral policy, but it is an amoral policy. We have not allowed humanitarian, ethical, or, and moral considerations to dominate our decision to intervene or not to intervene there. So we, we have a very inconsistent policy. And in terms of our friends, and uh, r right now, all of our, with the exception of Jordan, every major friend over the course of the last 40 years, every relationship is under some kind of strain with the Israelis, with the Saudis, with the Egyptians. And I, I'm troubled by it. I'm not sure there's a way to reconcile this in the face of these changes. But you're certainly right about the Egyptian military. I think, frankly, and we are going to end up restricting these high-prestige arms sales. I'm not sure the Egyptian, the Egyptian military will, any military will always tell you they need additional uh, tanks, Abrams tanks and F-16s. But do the Egyptians really need them? What they need is counterterrorism equipment for Sinai. That's what they really need. And they need good economic governance policies, which right now they do not have. 
Um, just a, a quick very answer. quick answer. Yeah. Um, just fast on the military balance. I think it is important to note the Saudis spend three times as much as the Iranians um, on in on GDP and defense. So actually, conventionally, the Iranians are quite weak. It's it's the asymmetric stuff that is worrisome. But um, you know, to my good friend from Egypt, um, it is. It's what Aaron said, you know, we're not the ones on the front lines. I'm sitting here in sunny Santa Monica very comfortably. I, you know, I feel, you know, we feel for you. It is a difficult situation that your country has gone through, enormous turmoil in the past few years. Uh, I think, though, the thinking is, you know, it didn't turn out, Nasserism didn't turn out that well, right? So it's understandable why um, in the chaos and turmoil and the absolute ineffectiveness of the Morsi regime. And, you know, it was, a, it was democratically elected, but nobody's going to deny. The United States talked to the Muslim Brotherhood leadership because they were the elected leaders. It's not that we wanted that to be the leadership necessarily, and it was not that we thought they were particularly effective at governance. And, in fact, the Egyptian people recognized this, and I think in our study show they probably would have been voted out, and that would have been a better outcome if they had been voted out than, than forced out in this way. I think the argument or the concern has more to do with the longer term. It's understandable short-term reaction to very ineffective governance. Um, but repression and, and stamping, you know, and, and really I think there's been the number of arrests we've seen since the ouster of Morsi over the summer is pretty shocking, and it's not just Muslim Brotherhood. And just, it's not just the attempt to pretty much eradicate the Muslim Brotherhood. You are seeing the leading members of the original uprising in Tahrir Square, including secular leaders, now imprisoned. Um, so it is a massive uh, crackdown in Egypt. The question is, where is this taking you in the longer term? It's, it's no doubt that the country and the people want stability. You need to deliver economic uh, you know, opportunity to the people. But... We've seen this story before, and we've seen it in Egypt. When you try to repress and eradicate an entire segment of the population, usually it doesn't work, and most and many times you actually breed further extremism. So I think it's a question of the, the approach. I think the United States very much wants to work with the Egyptian government to hopefully move to a, a pluralistic, tolerant, and civilian leadership and recognizing that we are not sitting in Cairo and it is very difficult, which is why we have such a confused policy on Egypt. Um, but I think that some of the assessment that I have seen and that we've certainly um, seen, that we've certainly done here, is we're very concerned about where is this heading in the long term? Are you thinking through the consequences of this? We have a question in the front. Um, Aaron, uh, you said that there are three countries that you consider to be serious players in the Middle East. Uh, I guess I don't understand why, don't, why you don't include the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is rich, powerful, and stable. It is the most uh, uh, continuous regime in the Middle East, uh, with the possible exception of Turkey. We have two people here who have written pretty good books on Saudi Arabia, including you, and I wonder why uh, Saudi Arabia isn't in this discussion. You know, in part, it's because the Saudis are spending a lot of time these days looking in the rearview mirror. That's why. That serious reform, they face an enormous, and I'll, I'll defer to Karen Elliott House on this, but I, I, I really do believe that you're, you're seeing in large part, not so much in the king, the kings have survived the Arab Spring, the Arab, whatever you want to call it, remarkably well. Um, Morocco, Jordan, under stress for sure, Saudi, some of the smaller Gulf states, made it through 
the most tra transformational period uh, in the last century in this region, through the, some of the most extraordinary disruptions, in part because they're womb-to-tomb societies, in part because money can be used to co-opt, in part because they're not as extractive. Their leaders are not as extractive or as cruel as the other authoritarians. King Abdullah is respected and beloved, a aging though he may be. Not Mubarak, not Ben Ali, not Abdullah Saleh of Yemen, certainly not Bashar Assad. And finally, I think you're right in, in the sense that when Saudis and Jordanians and Moroccans look around at the Arab Spring, they think to themselves, I don't want one of these here. So evolutionary change rather than revolutionary becomes um, the preferred course, course of action. I mean, I don't want to, I mean, it's the non-Arabs, I'm fascinated by, by these three. Um, they are, to me, the Saudis do not have the capacity to project, certainly to project their military power. I mean, in, in some respects, they're fundamentally dependent on us. They called George H.W. Bush in, in 91, and he delivered for them. And they're very worried now about our policies toward Egypt, toward Syria, toward, toward Bahrain in the, in the early, in the early uh, days of the Arab Spring, uh, and, and obviously toward, toward Iran. So you're, you're probably right that um, of all the Arabs right now, and most are offline, let's be clear, with the exception of Tunisia, you're watching a decentralization of power in this region. Lebanon, always a non-state, is still a non-state. Iraq is highly decentralized and is unlikely to, to emerge the way we envisioned it. Syria is coming apart and may never reconstitute itself with the kind of authority that the Assads um, um, marshaled all those years. Uh, and Egypt, incredibly dysfunctional, dominated over the last three years by the most anti-democratic forces in the country, the Islamists and the military. No, it was the Roman historian Tacitus who said that the best, he wrote in the fourth century, he said the best day, I love this quote, the best day after the death of a bad emperor is always the first day. <laughs> we better hope that Tacitus is wrong because the Arab world is, I won't say dissolving, but it's decentralizing and it is dysfunctional. With the exception of Tunisia, it is remarkable to me that with the exception of Tunisia, in large part because it's small and in some respects connected to other regions, Africa and to Europe, there is a, not a single example in the last three years of an Arab state affected by the Arab Spring that has produced leaders who can rise above their narrow sectarian corporatist or religious affiliations and think about the interests of the nation as a whole, institutions that reflect the legitimacy and authority of the people, and finally, no institutional mechanism for debating the most volatile of issues without it spilling out into the streets, paralyzing the country, or worse, creating violence. 22 countries in the world since 1950 have maintained their democratic character continuously. That's it. And India and Turkey are not on the list because they suspended the democratic process at, at various points during this period. 22 countries. You know, time is the ultimate arbiter of everything that's of value in this life. Good marriages, good wine, good music. 
things last if they're worth it. And getting into this Democratic club, it took us 150 years to reconcile the promise contained in the Declaration of Independence with the reality that our own constitution, without using the word, validated chattel slavery. 150 years it took us. And we're still not there. What do we really expect from this region? You want, you want to wonder why I have a sober analysis? That's why. <laughs> By the way, if you read Karen House's book, you probably wouldn't have that question. <laughs> I, I didn't mean to ask a long question. <laughs> and I didn't mean to give a long answer. We have another question in the front. Can I just follow up? I agree, uh, Mr. Miller, with everything you said about the um, Saudis looking around, frustrated Saudis looking around the region and saying, we don't really want to be Egypt, we don't want to be Tunisia, there's no better example, so kind of sucking it up for now. But given that I at least think that's the case, how do either of you explain why they seem to be cracking down um, now with, uh, you know, creating this joint commission to um, label things as terrorist organizations and uh, criminalizing uh, speech, um, um, you know, put, giving three to 20-year sentences if you go participate in jihadism. There just seems to be a negative sort of crackdown now versus the kinder, gentler Islam that the king has preached for his period. How do you explain that? I'm not sure sure I can. I mean, order, stability, and authoritarianism seems to be the order of the day just about everywhere, not only with Mr. Putin, but with Egypt, um, with Maliki in Iraq. Uh, I mean, the question really is what the absorptive capacity is of this kingdom to continue to make it through these difficult times. I mean, leadership change is coming sooner or later. Um, our our uh, North American energy revolution, particularly shale oil, horizontal drilling, fracking, all of this must cause them great concern. Uh, if if Dahlia is right, that in, in effect the Obama administration is looking at Iran as a potential partner, not just as a the other end of a transaction to avoid a military strike, to make uh, to preempt Israel's make ours unnecessary, and have the president leave office in 2016 with Iran having not crossed the threshold, which I think th those are his three objectives. But if Dai is right, and over the long term, I'm not talking well, about before he leaves you know, office. Term, They're not going to be a partner, so but it, you know, for the next president, yeah. I don't, I, I, I don't know. But but the Saudis have seen the oil for security relationship fray. Uh, they don't know about America anymore. Now again, and I'm not here to 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 bring back the authoritarians. I mean, we cut devil's bargains all these years with the with the what I call the acquiescent authoritarians. The Saudis, the Egyptians, the Yemenis, uh, the Tunisians, we, and even with Saddam in the, in the, in the mid-'80s. I mean, we, we decided in the interest of stability and order to basically ignore um, their disregard for accountability, transparency, respect for human rights. And um, 
it was a false stability that had to come to an end, that would, that came to an end. I, I, you know, I don't know. I think we, I think the Saudis will do okay over time because I think it's a very unique and special place. But um, the storm is coming and it may well be the bell will at, at some point toll for them too. Well, I just think it's a measure of vulnerability, right? The more, you know, there's the co-option strategy. They tried the 130 billion buy-off of people to, to weather the Arab Spring. Um, and then there's the repression. And they may not be as militarily powerful as other states in the region, but they did cross the causeway and put down the rebellion in Bahrain. So they are capable um, when, they are, when it's existential, which it is for many of these countries in the region right now. Um, we're seeing the kind of behavior that can very vulner- vulnerable powers often do dangerous things. Um, and that's the worry with Iran, by the way, too, um, that if they continue to feel vulnerable, because I think Iran is, is weak, ultimately, um, it doesn't mean they're not going to do dangerous things. So that story's not done either. I think there's an opportunity. I don't want to overstate it. But I think that's really the answer. Vulnerability is what's at, and that's the survival mechanism. And we'll see how this plays out. Okay. Um, I see a lot more hands out there, but we're out of time. So... Uh, Maybe Dahlia and Aaron will stay around for a few minutes if you have questions to come up. Uh, but otherwise, thank you for coming. Yeah, please join me in thanking our panel. Um, thank all of you uh, for being such an engaged audience, and we hope to see you back at RAND. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.